0: Hello and welcome to Think Fit Be Fit. My name is Jen Schwartz. I am the hostess and creator of this podcast. I'm so excited to be here today and share with you some of the most important and overlooked information about how we exercise and how we approach exercise and in fact, today's episode is all about one of the biggest lies and miss pieces of misinformation about form and how we execute our exercise. And that is motor learning with a colleague and friend that I am so proud to be associated with, Gregory Gordon of Exercise Intelligence. One of the main goals of this podcast in general is to essentially sell you the idea that most conventional exercise is like a minimum wage and that there is an entire menu of exercise that is so much better than what most of us are getting and that most of us can't access this menu without the knowledge of how the body works i'm most passionate about getting this menu to you this means helping people to develop a deeper connection to exercise, and that learning from exercise is the secret sauce to achieving pain-free exercise. And that's what this podcast is all about, exercise that is pain-free, healthy, and all about the process of self-improvement. This episode is a deep dive into the inner workings of these interests with someone I've already said, I'm so proud to call a friend, mentor, and colleague, Gregory Gordon of Exercise Intelligence. He has directly influenced my view on the body, the healing capacity of focused exercise, and has changed the way my body responds to exercise, which means he's someone I have paid and I I trust to work with me directly. If you've ever wondered how I've built a path for myself, and have had enough curiosity to find answers to these never-ending questions about the depths of exercise, it is because I've surrounded myself with Gregory and people like him. His clinic is in New York City in the Flatiron District. He has been a movement scientist and has a focus in pain management and motor skill performance. Gregory has spent the past 20 years customizing strength and conditioning programs for specific needs and a huge diversity of clients. He founded Exercise Intelligence in 2009 and practices muscle activation techniques Rx and really was the first dedicated MAT studio or clinic in New York City. From 2014 to 2016, Gregory served as a teaching fellow for the Cybex Research Institute. So that means you guys are getting a first row seat in a pretty advanced education class here. He um, taught neuroscience techniques, and continuing education for all kinds of exercise professionals. He holds a master's degree in movement science, motor learning, and control from Columbia University and is also a mastery level resistance training specialist. His current work is in exploring the role of self-organization of the nervous system in terms of prioritizing muscle system function and tissue repair. It's truly fascinating work, and every time I go see him or talk to him, I learn something new. In just a few minutes, you'll hear exactly how broad and smart this man is and really thoughtful and why I admire him so much. But first, before we start, I wanted to prompt you to think about a few things before we get into this. And one of those first things is that think about exercise as a skill acquisition and that it's not just a physiological thing we can do. It's all those things, but think about it from the skill development and you'll be in the right place to really listen to this conversation because I would like you to us all to recognize that we've been conditioned to think certain things about exercise and one of them is that the path to amazing exercise is paved with finding the right routine and the optimal or correct form for all exercises and people make sure that every rep is spot on. Well, we are challenging that today and we are challenging it from a very precise scientific point of view. I would also like to propose that the ideal form is not actually mechanics based. It's actually more about matching your goal to the appropriateness of the workout rather than being a form hound. We match the appropriateness to the what the person can learn and what they can adapt from. So this conversation goes in all kinds of cool directions all from the lens of science and uh, motor learning. And that study focuses on the behavioral, biomechanical, and neural basis of development, acquisition, and performance of functional movement skills. So we're gonna talk about muscle fiber types. We're gonna talk about the science of skill acquisition, muscle memory, and phases of different skill acquisition. A portion of this conversation is about training your body's ability to access various types of muscle fibers, which is very practical and super cool. And finally, think about what it means to redefine what we expect from a personal trainer. Anyways, this is a wonderful conversation. I cannot wait to get your feedback. But before we start, I wanted to bring your attention to our show, uh, and our affiliate, which is Ruvi. it is a drink that is all fruits and vegetables. They are freeze-dried powders. Ruvi is whole fruits and veggies. You can support the podcast by purchasing these packets and drinking them and being healthy. I love it. They include all the healthy fiber and nothing else. These are picked at their peak nutrition and then freeze-dried to lock in the nutrients and the flavor. You can purchase them at impactyourfitness.thrivelife.com slash ruby. And there are four different flavors. I I don't know which one I like more, um, but I'd love to hear that you're enjoying them and supporting the show. You can also hook us up with a review on iTunes. Think Fit, Be Fit, of course. And tell your friends. Or find me on Instagram and say hello at impactyourfitness, impact underscore your underscore fitness. You can find Gregory at exercise and on Instagram at exercise underscore intelligence. I hope you learn so much from this episode and if you have any questions about how to apply it to your exercise totally understand Instagram when i'm show notes and and what was going through my head when you were talking was also like how my body feels and my brain and my endorphins feel amazing after pilates Mm -hmm. and it's because i think my teacher has embraced
1: oh really because that that is if I had to single out one or two modes of exercise that I feel like violate this the worst. And again, obviously it's... it's
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's her teaching
1: style. Pilates and yoga where like they literally, I've been in yoga classes where like they do not give me a second to breathe. And then the teacher, like on top of that, like, this is your class. Do it. You're like yeah, class, you're lying. Like mm-hmm. you're not allowing me one second to like breathe here. Like you are literally giving me feedback, like second by second. And so like redefining that people should expect that a personal trainer, like if a person look a personal trainer you can read body language. If a personal trainer looks attentive, he's looking at his phone versus mm-hmm. he's looking at you. Obviously, you know it's a problem, but like. Just because a, per, a good personal trainer isn't necessarily like barking out feedback and encouragement and all that stuff to you every second, a good personal trainer should be watching what you're doing, considering it, looking if you're violating any, any of the bandwidth of error and then giving feedback if feedback is necessary.
2: And there's mm-hmm, plenty of times where mm-hmm. it's not
1: even necessary, mm. but that's still part of your job as the trainer to like, make sure that they're operating within this bandwidth. And you know, that like, I could be trained, like, I I know how to do a lunge really well, but, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing it first person. So, like, if there's a good, and it, it doesn't mean that, like, at a certain point, you don't need a trainer anymore. At a certain point, you may not be as totally dependent on a trainer,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: still, mm-hmm. all of us can use a trainer anytime time because we only have one perspective of what we're doing at any given time. Even if you're using a mirror or whatever, like, you know, you can always use, if someone knows, if you're on the same page with someone,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's always valuable to have another set of eyes on you and like but like
0: oh, that's for me. sorry. We don't
1: necessarily need, <laughs> We don't necessarily need, we certainly don't need like intraset second by second feedback and we don't even necessarily need like after every set feedback. We might, but like it's not necess- it's unnecessary. Mm. And like redefining that someone thinks that the best personal trainer is someone that like just doesn't shut up for 60 minutes. Um, they should really understand that that's actually inhibiting their ability to become skillful.
0: I, along with so many other of like our colleagues and listeners are interested in how the body moves and how we can make it move, help it move better. You went that extra step and you have a master's degree in motor learning. Can you just tell us why you did that and what, what, what you've, I don't know, not what you've learned, but like how it's like changed your practice or mm-hmm. your approach?
1: Yes. Well, well it definitely, yeah. um, it's sort of like BC and AD to me in terms of how significantly <laughs> it's, it's changed my approach. Uh And even then, like anything else, it's not like what I'm, the way I'm thinking about things now is a little bit different than the way I was thinking about things five years ago. And it was about 10 years ago that I started going down this path for, you know, officially studying motor learning and control through grad school. But I will back it up even a little bit further. um, Briefly, Is just to say that I started as a personal trainer probably sometime Um, around like 1999 ish. And like Mm -hmm. probably most people that are listening to your podcast and certainly anyone that's, that is doing it on a professional level. Mm -hmm. um, Like, I think anytime you have an interest in something, you're just curious. So when I started as a trainer, you know, just like everyone else of my age at the time, my, my education was like Rocky movies Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of personal of, uh, weightlifting and, um, you know, muscle and fitness magazine. So when mm-hmm. I started, my first job as a trainer was in New York City at a New York sports club, and I just had questions. And so I would ask like my boss and like, you know, New York sports club is one of those, like most big box gyms, they have a tiered system of trainer. And back then it was like, floor trainer then personal trainer then pro trainer then master trainer and so not every gym had a master trainer but my gym in particular had a few master trainers um one of whom worked for the buffalo bills and anyway i would just ask people questions all the time just because like i you know was curious about something and their answers were just like never satisfactory to me. And I could always tell, like, I, I knew I didn't know what I was talking about, but I also knew mm-hmm. by the answer, they didn't really know what they were talking about. It just like, <laughs> a stream of bullshit tangent stuff that mm-hmm. you know, we're all accustomed to. Um, but lo and behold, about a year, I think it was 2002 or 2003, that through New York sports, so somehow or some way I, you know I started with, Stuff that was popular at the time, which was NASM Mm -hmm. and perform better, that still hosts like seminars. I was studying this guy, Juan Carlos Santana, not to be confused with the guitar. Oh,
0: yeah, I remember that guy.
1: Yeah, the functional guy. (laughs) So, somehow or another, I made it up the ranks of being like a pro trainer Mm -hmm. at New York Sports Club. And because I was, they let me go for free. They used to hold this yearly. like a uh, seminar I like what like their equivalent of like an idea conference which would have like thousands of vendors and like hundreds of speakers
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: you know I just sort of clicked off the stuff that was interesting to me and I saw one lecture that was called five pounds is not five pounds and it was taught by my friend and yours uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Tom Purvis I went into his lecture and I didn't even know exactly what I was looking for, but I knew as I was sitting there, I was getting that like tingly feeling that A, I realized like when he was actually talking about like torque and levers and moment, like I had no idea like Mm that existed. I couldn't believe how ignorant I was. And B, I got that excited feeling like, oh my God, this is what I'm looking for. So then I went down that road and then fast forward seven years later. You know, I became a student of Tom Purvis and was, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually became a master level specialist through his program. And so through his efforts of, uh, which is really rare, sadly, um, you know, he's very interested in understanding and teaching the, the, um, engineering of resistance training machines, which is, he's one of the few people on the planet that, that actually does it and has an interest in it. Yeah. Right. So, um, along that uh so to further the education for that he actually brought the head of um the i think his eventual title was chief science officer but he he brought to the rts program a guy called uh, a guy named dr paul Juris,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who was the chief science officer of cybex to come to the rts group and give a lecture based on motor learning and control and it was an eerie similar feeling that again, by this by 2010, I was already a master level RTS person and a master level muscle activation techniques person and numerous, you know, plenty of plaques to fill up my wall. Um, and, you know, I thought I, I knew my stuff pretty well. And the same thing, Dr. Juris started talking and is like, I couldn't believe how much I didn't know. And I still have tapes of that, uh, that presentation. And like I when I hear the question, I mean, I give myself credit for at least asking questions. (laughs) Like I I sometimes have to fast. I can't even like. That's exactly what I do. I cringe so hard when I hear the questions and I, you know, like I just what he was talking about, all these motor learning and control principles and all this Mm -hmm. stuff that I was fascinated by. But again, had no idea at least peripherally, I kind of knew it existed, but like it, I didn't know any of this stuff. And it was just like with Tom Purvis that I didn't know that is what I was looking for, but that is what I was looking for. I was trying to figure out like a lot of these concepts that I thought about, but never really had like a specific way of like organizing them or like, you know, putting them into a specific verbiage or system. So he gave a presentation. And then during the presentation, during a lunch break, I went up to him and I said, hey, um, would you be interested in doing some private tutoring? And he literally laughed in my face and said, I'm way too busy to do private tutoring. If you're really interested in this stuff, you're in New York City, you know, get your shit together and you should go where I went to school, which is Columbia University, and study motor learning and control. And so he was the... um, you know, I he, he was the person I I saw and was my inspiration. And that's eventually what I did. So I came yeah. home and I had to finish up a couple things to I never even finished my bachelor's degree prior to that. So I had mm. to a course or two. And then um I finished all that stuff up and I applied to the motor learning and control program, which he graduated from, which is a teacher's college, Columbia University. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how I got started in it. And then from there, the, the real significance of, uh, and this is probably a theme we'll come back to a few times, but, um, I would say that prior to studying all this stuff, uh, my main focus, was to look at an exercise and to understand like the the mechanics of the exercise and i hate to use the term torque without explaining it so just bear with me
0: Uh, yeah no i mean it's a good thing to
1: so a torque just means that there's some amount of force and there's a distance to a joint so for anyone that's unfamiliar with the term you can just imagine a bicep curl and if you're standing up and at the beginning of the curl and the weight is just directly under your hand, there's a load there, but there's no real distance from the elbow joint. It's just like a straight line. And then as you start to do the curl and you come to like the middle part where like your palm is now like, face is now parallel to the ceiling. So now you've got a load and now there's a certain amount of distance from the elbow joint. And when you put a load and a certain amount of distance from a joint, that's what torque is.
2: Mm -hmm. And so
1: through the RTS program, and um, you know, various other interests. That was, I really sort of, my main focus of, of exercise programming was always thinking about, okay, well, in this exercise, where's the load, where's the torque? How can I manipulate that? Um, and that's certainly still something, of course, I think about with every exercise, but there was one thing that Dr. Juris said during his presentation that I didn't really understand at the time and it's only really been the last few years that I think more and more of it. And it's really become my, my, probably one of the things I think about primarily in terms of exercise instruction. And that was, he said that if he had to stick his flag in the ground on anywhere in terms of like exercise programming, it would be about the velocity. It wouldn't even be about like the corrective movement or this time. It wouldn't even necessarily be about the load as much. It would be about the velocity.
0: So that would be the the thing that he would want to
1: that's what he teach when, change that yeah, exactly, so when he thinks about an ex and i I hate to speak for him, but so I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing my interpretation of it and mm-hmm. um, but subsequent to that, you know, having conversations with him, but yeah, like. Mm-hmm if he had to focus on only one thing in an exercise he would focus on the velocity just because there's su- such a significant difference in terms of the motor control aspects when you do something at a ballistic the neural aspects. yeah so mm-hmm. the way your body is going to organize the motion and the way it's going to call on muscle groups um is so significantly different um when you do things at a very high velocity versus a uh, slow velocity um and so that's something so that when i say there's like a bc and an ad yeah it was really that i just never before then you know i velocity was a variable that i considered somewhat but it really like i was more into this sort of like bodybuilding-esque for lack of a better term thought process of like just making sure you're really controlling the exercise and like focusing on like really controlling both like the bringing the whatever exercise you're doing you know like the hard part and the quote-unquote easy part of the exercise just really focused on like having perfect control of all that stuff and uh and figuring out where the torques are Mm
2: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. mm-hmm yeah that's
0: my favorite way to exercise
1: yeah and so (laughs) there's we could debate about like, yeah, what are the benefits, what are the deficits of doing it that way? Um, and there's certainly plenty of benefits doing it that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have, I've experienced doing exercise in a lot of different speeds and even la- the last year, I spent a lot of time focusing on um, strength training and periodization for myself. Oh,
1: interesting. Cause I, that would be something I'd love to talk about.
0: Yeah, it was really, it was such a good learning experience for me because I was exposed to muscle activation techniques and resistance training specialists as a young trainer and a Mm -hmm. coach, a sports coach. Mm -hmm. And I learned from those experiences that I didn't have to follow everyone else's rules. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And periodization is following everyone else's rules right
1: <laughs> yeah so so, what, yeah uh, <laughs> I'm curious like how closely did you follow a periodization model when you did it
0: I had a coach I did it um I had a coach who was an expertise in periodization and from the the poliquin world mm-hmm. of, okay right? and i'm not
1: familiar with his particular take on oh it oh my god well basic model of you got the macro cycle the mesocycle yep okay
0: yeah so i followed uh i followed the cycles and mm-hmm. you know for a squat for increasing my s- squat strength i guess we would call that mm-hmm. that was a, the specific goal mm-hmm. and then also um hamstring strength as in I wanted to grow them,
2: mm-hmm. so not hypertrophy. necessarily
0: hypertrophy for the
2: hamstrings, okay,
0: not necessarily hypertrophy. we wanted to get them stronger um in uh more at lengthened ranges and mm-hmm. at uh you know concentric and the that type of range
1: and did you have a specific measure for that or
0: well, yeah, the squat depth um did seem to correlate you know, to how far my body was going to let me go, basically. So mm-hmm. especially with my segmental ratios, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm very, you know, I have a long, long, long femur mm-hmm. and for a five foot three person. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of them. Um, the other one we used was a uh, like a a step down motion and the knee control within that. And then we did. We used uh, the eye sensors to specifically the one, the all, both the squat measures. Okay. And we also used. Oh, we did a one. We did a one rep max on the leg curl. That was also part of the testing. Okay. And there was an imbalance.
1: There was an imbalance. Um, yeah. Right side to left side.
0: Yeah. As far as the what I could uh yeah my one rep max
1: and you're someone that's had a um an acl tear correct
0: both of my na- my knees have acl tears
1: right Okay. Yeah. uh was, interesting fun. okay yeah. so you you had these variables and then uh-huh. you put them into the model of a, of a periodization plan yep and so what are your takeaway thoughts from it
0: i learned a lot about my own comfort zone you know i went out of my comfort zone on an intellectual level Mm
2: -hmm.
0: i went out of it on a mental level i was scared out of my mind with my knees at times um because
1: was it sorry to interrupt but was it because the periodization model calls for a certain workout at a certain time Mm -hmm. which may or may not be congruent with how you're feeling at that given day but you know if you're going to adhere to the periodization program you're supposed to do a certain type of workout you know based on where you are in yes that of, so did you it's have a
0: very do, much a just do it mentality yeah so When was, you have your plan yeah Did you
1: have to sort of rationalize like against what you thought was your better judgment like going like through some of that stuff okay
0: yes yes i was yeah i was out of my comfort zone on many levels
1: And ultimately, do you think that, like, did you learn something that you're more resilient than you thought you could be? Or is it something that now you would say, like, you know, I wouldn't do it again because I... No,
0: it was the first thing. I'm way more resilient than I thought I would be. And my hamstrings look great. (laughs)
1: That's
0: awesome. (laughs) Um, And there is a functional reason that I wanted to work on the hamstring fat ratio, because it is correlated to a high estrogen load in the body.
1: Okay, so that's the polyquin stuff there.
0: That's the polyquin stuff as well. He has training protocols for, you know, eccentrics and all kinds uh-huh. of stuff. And it, it's pretty, um, I, I don't agree with it on a lot like on several levels, um, but the, I, the guy who trained me, his name is Evan. Um, he did my programming and then I would send him video feedback and he would be like, okay, that is not four seconds in the eccentric
2: Mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. And I'd be
0: like, oh my God. And it, you know, there is always, and I, and he always encouraged me to go to what, what he called, um, technical failure.
1: And what's his description for technical failure?
0: And mechanical failure is where you just drop it. And technical failure is losing form basically Mm -hmm. on your last rep. Okay. And um, I did not do that. That was that was that was my boundary. I was like, no, we're not doing that. I'm going to do that. (laughs) Um, So uh, in in his feedback, he was always encouraging me to go a little bit heavier. And uh, I did not. But I followed the rep scheme. I followed the percentage scheme of, um, you know, the one we were at one point we were working. um, I was doing two reps of a squat. Mm-hmm. and um but and that was in a set of like six sets, six mm-hmm. sets of two. Oh mm-hmm. my god. It took forever. Which is like the funny part, the ironic part. I'm like cuz you have to do the right amount of rest in between. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. like just took forever. Um you'd be just at the squat rack for 35
1: minutes. <laughs> and speaking of rest, did you have a, a specific deloading phase programmed in there? at a few points
0: yeah i i programmed the load. okay Uh because you know that was i felt good about that um and yeah so i learned a lot but let's get back to motor learning okay i think that was that was that was super fun to talk through though
1: (laughs) well i would let's put a pin in it because i would i and i want to take a cue from um Governor Cuomo, so obviously, okay. we're not talking in a vacuum here. We're talking yeah. March 24th, 2020, in the midst of the coronavirus epidemic. And, and so, I, the only sort of outside news I can watch is Governor Cuomo, because like I can't listen to Trump speak. And, but I watch the, and also because I live in New York, or I work in New York now, I actually live in New Jersey, but either way, uh, it's a long way of saying I watch Cuomo and what I really appreciate, and this is also something that um, Dr. Paul Juris, if you go on YouTube, he doesn't have a lot on YouTube. If you're, if you're really interested in in motor control type subjects, he does do presentations every so often, but he also makes a point of doing this, which is to say he separates just sort of like supported evidence versus personal opinion. And so when it comes to periodization, I have a bunch of personal opinions that I feel like periodization is good for like, and I hate to use these, these really just sort of gross general terms, but in my opinion, a periodization model,
2: again, certainly has its
1: benefits, has its deficits, but it really works well for like, the 0.1% of the population that's like an olympic level athlete someone whose schedule you can control whose full time job is training but i there's a term i like that i think i made up but not that it's important but i there's a term that i just use is essentialization which is to essential. like what's really essential for human whether you're again this like whether you're an 80 year old grandma or a 20 year old crossfit person or but like just trying to figure out what's really essential for like, you know, your for optimal movement for this person, and I know periodization is trying to do the same thing. But in my opinion, in my, in my opinion, periodization. When you go down the rabbit hole of like, let's say for a period of time, you're really focused on like very low rep, very high load. Like mm-hmm. at any time, I think every person needs to have robust power, robust strength and robust endurance and if Mm -hmm. you focus on only one of those things for too long by law you're gonna you're gonna lose some traction in the other areas and i actually think for most people it's much it's a much better fit to sort of within your normal training program to like try to touch all the bases of like you know some part of your exercise program should be done at a very high velocity some should some part of it should be very high load low rep some should be in that middle-ish like moderate load you know moderate volume hypertrophy and some of it should be you know endurance based so i think that's a much better fit for literally 99 percent of us even people that are athletes and but again, that's just my opinion.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. So it was ro- robust. Go, go through that again. Like what would in, in case essentialism?
1: So basically, you've got a spectrum of motor units from the mm-hmm. slowest slow twitch motor units to the biggest, thickest fast twi- uh, fast twitch type motor units. So the smallest slow twitch units are Mm -hmm. really important for like postural control, endurance, um, exercises like a plank, for example, when you're holding it for like a minute or two, that's good because there's a lot of trunk muscles that, um, you know, need to contract for long periods of time. If you're sitting or even walking, you know, they, mm-hmm. a lot of the muscles that stabilize the spine do seem to be, have a higher preponderance of type one fibers. So mm-hmm. a plank is a totally valid and appropriate exercise. However, if you're, uh, if you're throwing a baseball or, or, it doesn't even have to be something sport specific. If you're, if you're turning your trunk quickly, like a plank doesn't necessarily help you.
2: Mm-hmm. You need
1: to train the you need to train your nervous system because the the higher as you go there's something called Henneman size principle
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's basically this idea that anytime you contract muscles you have to go through the spectrum of starting with the slowest twitch fibers eventually to get up to the to the thickest fast twitch fibers and your body is a little bit. Um, it doesn't necessarily want to access those fast twitch fibers too easily. You sort of have to train your body's ability to, to access those fibers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if you only do like, if you only do all of your exercise in this really controlled part of the spectrum and you don't do things at a very high velocity, and I'm not saying all of your exercise has to be like Mm -hmm. that, but during the week, a portion of it should be, Um, you're going to miss out on the capability of teaching your nervous system how to readily access those fast-switch fibers so that even if you're stepping off a curb or throwing a baseball or Mm -hmm. anything you're doing, so if you're stepping off a curb, your ankle joint is displacing at like 180 degrees. I mean, it's it's not moving a lot of Mm range. But the little bit of range it is moving in milliseconds is very rapid. And in order mm-hmm. to stabilize that, muscles have to contract like with power, like very, very rapidly.
2: Mm-hmm. And unless
1: you train your nervous system to be able to do that, you're not going to be able to access it as well as you could be at least. So what I think, so essentialization to me is just making sure that, Whatever your training program looks like, whether it's like two days off, whatever it is, just that you're always thinking about like, okay, I want to spend some portion of my time like improving my endurance capability. I want to spend some portion of my time improving my maximal strength capability. I want to improve some of my time just trying to get the muscle, fi- the muscle fibers a little bit bigger and thicker. And then I want to spend some of the time teaching my nervous system how to get these muscles to respond with a very, very high rate of tension development. Mm-hmm. That's what essentialization is to me. That you're looking at this entire spectrum of contractile um, capabilities and you're figuring out based on your needs. But I, again, I believe every whether you're 90 or whatever I'm going to keep saying, mm-hmm. this, but you get the gist whether you're young or old, you need this, you want to take advantage of this entire spectrum of. Mm. Um, motor unit capabilities yeah do you want to they essential should, should
0: we break that into a uh a scenario that we might see in the gym or there, like in a program
2: sir.
0: yeah because i mean i could talk about my own program
2: okay well
1: yeah i mean i can even just t- so like you were talking about earlier like mm-hmm. training your hamstring and specific to like training your hamstring in various States of length of the hamstring, and so what I think. So when you look at just basic gait or running, like when your foot is hitting the ground, you know gravity is trying to accelerate knee flexion, and, and so gravity is basically trying to fold you up. Without getting too technical about yep. it. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 So
1: one end of your hamstring is actually getting lengthened out. One end of your hamstring is actually getting shorter, but. It's not getting shorter because the muscle contracts and pulling it's in it's really gravity just sort of like forcing it down that way either way i think it's really important to train those muscles to be able to rapidly lengthen and shorten very quickly Mm -hmm. and then also you know take some time to like go in a more slow controlled setting and try to really just work on like okay building like The maximal strength of this muscle and actually making the maybe building up some of the hypertrophy but um
0: could i I, do all of that within the variation and tempo of a deadlift
1: yeah so essentially like you could do something where like you're on the way down the eccentric as you're lowering the load
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know like as the as at least one of one end of the hamstrings are being um lengthened you're sort of like decelerating with control like you're not going super slow but you're going slower on the way down then when you get to the whatever end of the range you're comfortable with you're rapidly coming back up so you're mm-hmm. making those hamstrings have to contract very rapidly
0: did you get did did you put a clap in there uh I sorry i snapped. <laughs> 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 <stopped>. okay everybody <laughs> that's without yeah we yeah. had to get that <laughs> in there <laughs>
1: real life and then you could actually progress that to like okay now you now that you can control it you go down fast you come up fast and then you can also play with it as to like okay now instead like we worked on some of the velocity component we've got the hamstring both comfortable with getting stretched out quickly and also contracting quickly Mm -hmm. is you know um, as someone that does what i do or you Mm -hmm. do anyone in the health field that actually works with people in yeah, the rehab context, I think we would all agree that we see a disproportionate amount of hamstring tightness, mm-hmm. hamstring, you know, like not that someone necessarily has a correct or specific diagnosis, but it's very rare someone walks in my door and they're not complaining about some sort of like tightness or pull or strain or something in their hamstrings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think a big part of it is that like, even, you know, in just gait, like we're not, it's not getting trained enough in a controlled setting with the velocity it needs to be really comfortable with like getting stretched out very quickly and being able to contract very quickly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that's that's an important aspect. And again, not to totally neglect the other parts, which is, okay, also adding more load, doing it with control, adding more load and doing low reps and all that stuff. It's not oh, to say the other stuff isn't valuable. It's just mm-hmm. in my, again, this is my opinion, in my opinion, whether it's someone I'm training, or it's just stuff I see in the gym, or it's talking to other trainers, the end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. That if I ever talk about power training, people instantly think I'm starting to talk about Olympic lifts and CrossFit,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you know, Olympic lifts they typically are done, but power is just work over time. You're just moving a joint that is with a certain amount of speed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's no an Olympic lift isn't any more power than doing a bicep curl fast, or faster than your previous rep. Power is simply work over time. Just how quickly you're moving a force over a distance. And Mm so, to me, um, that's the end of the spectrum that I don't see being trained appropriately. I do see some people move, you know, any of us that go to a gym, Mm-hmm. you'll always be that one person that's like just throwing weights around with a ton of speed but like that's not what I'm talking about that's just you know someone with very poor like exercise instruction and, and poor control they're just you know honestly they're trying to make it easier because they're actually trying not to lift the weight they're just sort of throwing it around with inertia what yes. I'm talking about is a very specific acceleration and maybe a very specific deceleration but at least being very specific with, you know, the acceleration component and the velocity Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be an Olympic lift. It could be a cat. It could literally be anything you're doing. It's just, you're trying to figure out, okay, here's the speed I want this joint to move at. And do I want the other direction to move at the same speed? Do I want to slow down one end? It's just, that's what power training is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could see why people would have, um, A little bit of a difficult time saying, "Oh, that's power training." But, I mean, if you think about it, like you control the dial of the power. Yeah. It makes total sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, because the word "power" infers like, you know, big burly dudes bench pressing five hundred pounds or Olympic lifts, and you know, again, like power lifting. By the way, so and any way you tweak the formula, so like. Mm -hmm a power lift could be power but like a power it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to do anything as a matter of fact most interestingly power training when you look at the research is typically so whatever your one rep max is so if i was going to do like a bench press for power which we can argue about whether that's good exercise bad exercise whatever but let's just say that's what i wanted to do So what the research shows is that like 30% of your one rep max is really sort of like the sweet spot for training power, because if it's too heavy, you just can't accelerate the joint fast enough. And if it's too light, it's just not as enough, it's just not enough stimulus to adapt to. Um, So somewhere 30% of your one, so it's not about heavy load really at all. It's about this 30 and i can um once this podcast is any any of the research i cite i like to give people the ability sure yeah uh, i believe it's komi o m i but i will after the podcast is over i'll send you links yeah people can yeah
0: no I, um so 30% of a one rep max yeah is the ideal it, no, in research, it has been shown to be a sweet spot for, you were saying power, or is this like a, vo- are we back to velocity?
1: Well, so the same, like power training to me is velocity training. Okay, so that's, yeah. I, and I should maybe be more specific with my words, but yeah, so like if you're training power, so mm-hmm. ultimately comes down to, if you're training power, you're trying to take, you're trying to train rate of tension development. That should be the goal for power training. Mm -hmm. And certainly like force output and like if you're an Olympic lifter or whatever, but at least in my mind, when I'm training power, my main focus is training rate of tension development. Again, getting these motor neurons that are hard to access otherwise, you either have to be like using a lot of load in certain fatigue conditions, you can pull in type two fibers more easily. But one of the best ways to do it is just to move with a very high velocity. So in order to get a high, in order to access these type of motor neurons that are at the high end of the scale,
2: mm-hmm.
1: our training, rate of tension development training, the sweet spot seems to be using about 30% of the one rep max you could be using for that exercise.
0: Oh, that's so interesting.
1: Yeah, it's really counterintuitive to what you mm. would.
0: Yeah, what, um, when you've seen it pop up in research, what kind of exercises were they using?
1: uh, could be something like a leg extent, you know typically, yeah, like they're trying to um yeah you know control
0: I wonder if that would be different for the lower body and the upper body
1: so you know depending on uh the like the fatigability of certain muscle groups and your mm-hmm. ability to to max so uh, and I know we're really trying to talk about motor learning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is my greatest fear that we would start going off into all these tangents. So
0: My greatest fear is, that, is to be locked in my house.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's come true.
0: Watching my dog walk back and forth.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's been our source of entertainment.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but on the other end of the rate of tension development spectrum, there is maximal recruitment. Um mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily the same, although they, they certainly overlap. But um you um so not every and this is actually I mentioned this guy, Chris Beardsley, whose mm-hmm. Instagram account I follow and I think is mm-hmm. really interesting. And I've learned a lot of stuff from the papers that he's been posting mm. about your ability to even for each muscle, they have a way of determining like how how much of that muscle can you access basically and again Mm. they're not doing like anything like muscle activation techniques or anything they're just sort of looking at like what's the heaviest amount of weight you can lift and then they're like adding some electrical stimulation to see if you can even increase the amount of weight when they add the electrical stim and if you can then they can figure out like okay so you may be only you may only be able to access In a certain, like, for example, in your bicep, most people can access just very close to like all of the available motor units, which are just these motor neurons in the spine that connect to the muscle fibers of the muscle, Mm -hmm. you can basically activate all of those in your bicep. But in your quads, for example, most people Mm -hmm. can only activate about 50% of their quads, which is really interesting.
0: That's so interesting.
1: Yeah, Yeah. actually back to the hamstrings. And so they don't really know why, actually. I mean,
0: I would think it's because you need so much co-activation to control and like that, like control these like knee bending and knee deceleration or hip deceleration that that's where the reserves are is for that. Like that's, that's just my imagination.
1: Yeah. Well, I I actually totally agree. So I.
2: that question of like how much muscle
0: like can you access and like i i think that's super interesting
2: yeah
1: and so um it depends on how you're testing it Mm -hmm. but this guy chris beardsley if you if if you're interested so one of the things they found and several researchers have now confirmed it is that smaller muscles with a higher percentage of of fast twitch fibers so let me clarify that again. So these fast twitch fibers, like the things I'm talking about
2: mm-hmm.
1: that are harder to access. So every muscle has a certain percentage of slow twitch and fast twitch.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of them, it's like, you know, 50, 50 ish. One is maybe like 56 and, you know, for, for, like there it's, there's are very few muscle that it's like 90% slow twitch and 10%. Like most of them are sort of half and half ish. Um, the calf, the gastroc muscle mm. part of your calves. that's mm-hmm. one muscle that's really high in slow twitch. So it's mm-hmm. an anomaly. And something like your pec or biceps are a little bit of an anomaly. And it actually tends to be more in upper body muscles, that there's a higher percentage of fast twitch.
2: Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what they
1: found is that smaller muscles, say a muscle like your bicep, mm-hmm. it has a higher percentage of fast twitch fibers versus slow twitch. So let's say in the bicep, it's 60% fast twitch to 40% slow twitch. Because fast twitch muscles don't use oxygen for fuel, you know, they're they're more reliant on like stored sugars and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They get damaged more easily and they don't get repaired as quickly. And therefore, mm. they are fatigued longer, so, you can't get the same amount of contract. If you do a crazy bicep workout and we know like plenty of people, I used to have a client that I would literally have to like, we would finish a workout. And then there are times I would just turn around and go back in the gym to see what he was doing. and <laughs> begin, like two or three more, like he's just addicted to bicep curls,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is actually going against the, the evidence that's supported, but at least what the evidence shows is that smaller muscles, which higher, with which have, high percentage of fast twitch muscles get mm-hmm. damaged more easily mm-hmm. They don't recover as fast and it actually you can't access all their they'll be fatigued for long periods of time to where if you tried to use that same muscle in a day or two you wouldn't be able to access all those motor units because it's still in this like repair process so like they know that the quads show up with only about 50%. I totally agree with what you think It's that mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with like, if the hamstrings don't feel like they can slow down very rapid knee extension, you know, your mm-hmm. quad, like one side of your body is pretty much only going to let you move as fast as the other side mm-hmm. can slow down.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: I um, totally agree with you that I think a lot of the reason you can't access your quads has less to do with like, some weird motor neuron population of the quads that has mainly to do with the hamstrings are always in a state of like inflammation. And so that changes the way, so you've got the hamstring muscles that are located behind your thigh. You've also Mm -hmm. got the hamstring muscles that are located in your sensory and motor cortex. And so in that area, and it's really like the joint representation,
0: like the map.
1: Exactly. What we call the homunculus. So these Mm -hmm. sensory maps you have of the muscles. So Mm -hmm. once you've got inflammation and chronic inflammation, it really starts to change these maps in the brain of these muscles and these, basically the joints and your way you can like start to, um, prepare and eventually send signal to move, to move that joint and like how the muscles are going to work in a synergy to create the motion you want. So once you've had like chronic inflammation, it really, really alters those maps. And so, the ability to recruit any muscle at any given time is somewhat based on, like, again, what its fast twitch, its size, and its fast twitch to slow twitch population, and then B, um, like, what, how, how it's represented in your brain.
2: Yeah. Mm.
0: Gosh, I want to. So first of all the whole thing about not access, not being able to access these uh, fast twitch as mm-hmm. efficiently mm-hmm. or, um, and they, the most important thing I think for people to grasp is that they don't heal quickly. Was that, or was that the slow twitch?
1: The, the so muscles, so a smaller muscle, so say a muscle like your glute, which is uh-huh. probably, I I've been, it's really hard to get like very specific statistics for each muscle. But again, this guy, Chris Beardsley has some good ones. Um, Yeah, he's pretty much the only resource I have for that stuff. I've seen it a little bit here and there, but, but so a muscle like your butt, which is a big, strong muscle, let's say it's probably in most people um, a little bit more fast twitch than slow twitch. But because it's just a large, like if we like just cut it out and put it on a scale, it's a big muscle relative to like your bicep. It's just got more diameter than your bicep.
2: Yeah.
1: So surface, yeah. Yeah. And so a smaller muscle that has a higher percentage of fast twitch fibers gets damaged more easily just because if it had more slow twitch, it would get more oxygen into the muscle in the oxygen you know get more blood flow more oxygen it would it would repair the tissue faster but because like type 2 muscles don't really they're not aerobic like that they just take a longer time to heal yeah so that's even, interesting even if the ratio is the same let's say the the glu- your butt muscle and your bicep muscle had the mm-hmm. same exact proportion of fast t- fast twitch to slow twitch
2: mm-hmm.
1: we would still expect to see the um glute heal faster just because it's a bigger muscle and it just it, it can like sort of spread out that stress a little bit more
0: mm, uh yeah yeah and then whew, so what about rectus femoris where would that fall
1: so that would so the quads again are typically like in that 50 50 ish range uh-huh and so the rectus femoris if they you would see that like if you were doing a knee so in your periodization you guys are actually looking at like hamstring like single joint hamstring strength right like doing some sort of selectorized machine okay Mm -hmm. so and whatever value you came up with in terms of load if you looked at the if you looked at the opposite side if you looked at knee extension and let's just say your one rep max on knee extension was like 80 pounds or something Mm -hmm. without having to like get into minutiae about how machines can be a little bit different and mm-hmm. like let's just mm-hmm. say on the we're just going to accept that all the machines are the same and you found that you could do a one rep max mm-hmm. of pounds that theoretically mm-hmm. your real capability would be like 160 pounds because your body is only letting you access 50 percent of the motor neurons meant to serve your quad muscles
0: mm. yeah
1: And so that's what they're finding in the research that like we put like stim on you and sort of like just sort of forced your, like just gave a more electric juice to your muscles. Mm, The motor
0: neurons not necessarily responding to
2: just getting more juice going.
1: In your brain, your brain is saying for whatever reason, okay, like I could move this with 160 pounds, but I'm only going to use 80 pounds to move it. And why yeah. that doing that? You know, that's what we're talking. We don't know. But. That
0: brings me to want, wanting to talk about intention of the movement and like when we were discussing this podcast, um, you know how the theory of you know like what we're talking about right now, which is basically muscle physiology and motor neuron mm-hmm. recruitment, right? Mm-hmm. And how that goes into how your brain. Uh, remembers this stuff and how it accesses it. That would be more into the motor control.
1: Yeah. So that's a really good. Yep. One of the things I should have said in the beginning was just to simply present the definitions of what the difference is between motor learning and motor control. And then from there, talk a little bit about specifically what motor learning is versus motor performance. So motor Mm -hmm. control is -hmm. sort of all this esoteric theoretical stuff about how we think the brain is organizing movement and how it, yeah, like how it goes to different parts of the brain and how we sort of like go from having like a, a general idea of what we want to do and we start to formulate the plan and then the plan gets more specific in different parts of the brain up until it sends a signal down to your spinal cord. And at the spinal cord is where like the, like in your brain, your brain is concerned with the, the goal, the plan, mm-hmm. figuring out like what joint, like the trajectory of the joint motion and then the velocity of the joint motion. And then like, that's actually where the brain sort of hands off. And then once that signal goes down to the spinal cord, that's where the specific muscles like, okay, we're going to use rectus femoris and, you know, uh, biceps. Like in in the spinal cord is where the specific muscles, um, start to get figured out, but your brain is being learned with the plan,
2: Mm. the
1: joint trajectory and the velocity. And again, going back to Dr. Juris, that's why the velocity is so specific because depending on the speed you're moving at, um, will radically alter the, like the mm. way all of the muscles. So if I'm doing a bicep curl again and when and like
0: I, I can see this in my head as a diagram and when you're saying these areas, I I, I can kind of depict these uh things lighting up and sending signals.
1: And I don't want to make it seem as it, it, so it's not totally linear in like like a relay race. We're like, okay, this part hands off to this part and this part, Mm -hmm. although it kind of is, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of like concurrent activations happening on both sides of the brain and multiple parts of the brain. And if we ever get a chance to talk about pain, we can talk about Mm. that really sort of disrupts certain parts and makes, other parts light up more than they should, but just so I'm clear, that's what motor control is about. Motor control mm. is about figuring out, okay, like what is, how do we create movement? How do we code for it? Like that's all the motor control stuff, figuring out the nitty gritty of yeah. these, these things that are in the brain and spinal cord and like the, all the wiring. Motor yeah. learning- The,
0: the is- word code is really interesting.
1: Yeah. So I hadn't
0: thought of it that way. Yeah.
1: So, uh, and we'll, we'll talk in a second about Uh memory Uh and, but, but basically motor control is that stuff. So if you're a geek, if you love to like, you know, all the theory and esoteric stuff, like that's the motor control aspect. Like, here's how we think for a given task. Here's how your brain figures out how to accomplish that. Motor learning is the very practical side of, of taking a skill and figuring out okay first of all what what are the what are the components of the skill based on those mm-hmm. components how should we set up a practice scheme for this skill and then how should we measure like whether or not we are learning and learning means that you retain um, the skill after a period of time away for it So, like, we've all crammed for it. We've all had the experience where we have a class we don't like. It's the day before the final exam, and we just cram for it. And we're just, like, you know, just, like, all day just, like, memorizing stuff we don't like and just spitting it out. And, you know, somehow you're able to pass the test the next day. And then if I ask you a question about anything on the test three days later, you're like, "I, I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) i'm sure you've had that experience right uh yeah (laughs) so i've had it plenty of times so that's that's equivalent to motor performance meaning like if i had to like learn a dance routine that i was going to do on instagram but like there was nothing about this dance routine Mm -hmm. important to me once past the point i posted it on instagram so a real A really good way of practicing for that is just cramming, just like the way we do, just doing this thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And And then you perform the task like right away and you do it reasonably well because you've been honing it for like the last 24 hours or so. Mm -hmm. And then if I ask you to do it in a week, you can't even like you're stumbling, you can't even remember it. That's motor performance. Motor learning means that if I teach you this skill, that in two weeks from now, if I ask you to perform the skill you can perform the skill with some level of economy and efficiency that it's, it's actually skillful as opposed to like, you know, you're just doing some vague iteration of it. That There's a per, you know, in whatever way we would measure that this is like, like, like if it was a free throw shot in basketball, if we said, okay, in order to demonstrate skill, we think that hitting four out of 10 free throws is, is, you know, that demonstrates skill. So there's, we would look at a free throw. We would say, okay, what are the components of the skill? So we know it's standing standing still. Mm -hmm. You get to choose when to shoot the ball. And so Mm -hmm. in motor learning, there's types of skills that we call open and closed. Mm -hmm. and so an open skill is one in which there's a spatial and temporal aspect to it and i i apologize in using these fancy terms but
2: Mm -hmm.
1: anyone looks this stuff up i don't want them to be confused all spatial represents is what you think space just like spatial awareness like when you're parking a car and knowing how close your car is to that car all that sort of stuff temporal just means timing and so in an open task an open task is something like if you're a baseball pitcher and you're throwing me a pitch
2: mm-hmm.
1: i have got to respond to your timing so i can't control the time i can control when i choose to swing the bat but if i want to be successful i've got to predict like how fast you're throwing it how quickly i think it's going to come across the plate So, and then I've got to spatially predict where I think the ball is going to end up. And so I've got to manage both of these aspects of the task if I want to hit the ball with a certain level of skill. If I'm looking at a free throw, it's only really the spatial. Like I can, you know, I can't sit there for an hour, obviously, but if I was at home and I wanted to, I could, I, there's nothing that I've got to be coincidental to in terms of the timing. I get to sit there for as long as I want to. And then when I'm ready, I get to shoot the ball. And that's what we call a closed skill. Mm. And so Mm. you would practice for those two different tasks in a very different way. Um, Or at least at a certain point, there'd be very, you would add a a bunch of other things that would be relevant to the open skill that you might not necessarily need in the closed skill. Mm. So motor learning is all about, first of all, figuring out the types of skills, the components in the skills, then setting up the best and most effective practice schemes based on those skills.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So ironically we think that like just practicing over and over and over and over is always the best way to do it but I can tell you unequivocally and you know my my main interest in doing this podcast other than just getting you know a chance for us to talk about stuff together is that there's so much good research on mm. the motor, like the motor control side And when I say we, I don't want to pretend like I'm a research scientist. That's part of like Mm -hmm. motor control papers. I'm just going to say we as like I'm a student in the motor learning control world that like we really still, you know, we're guessing on like what we think is happening. And, you know, there's good evidence and there's good support. But like we can't say for sure this is what's happening in the brain. You know, we there's there's things are more or less supported.
0: Why do people need that information?
1: Why do people need what information?
0: The the wonderful research in this community on.
1: Oh, well, I think what they, what they really need the information on is in the motor learning side, there's mm-hmm. so much good evidence in terms of setting up your practice. In terms of like, if you want to learn a certain skill, here's the best way to practice it. And it is so almost perpendicular to the way things actually get practiced on like a amateur level professional level in sports or uh, otherwise like wow because what we tend to think is that like if you want to get really good at guitar you should just do this you know at and i I really like malcolm gladwell actually but he made popular in Mm -hmm. one of his books this idea of ten thousand hours of practice which is um it comes from this guy Uh, and I I think several people are sort of claiming papers on it now, but when I learned about it in school, it came from this, this guy, Erickson. And I believe the task he was looking at was either Cuban cigar rollers or people that were assembling, um, you ever seen like any of those old Vietnam movies, they have to like take their rifle apart very quickly and put it back together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was the task he was looking at. And that's a closed skill, meaning like you get to choose the timing. It's not super complex in terms of like, you know, that there's 10,000 different parts to it, at least in the cigar rolling part. Um, So 10,000 hours of just basic practice for that type of skill can be very effective. But if you've got to do something like if I'm a forward in soccer and I've got to learn a bunch of different skills, just one of them being like how to... Absorb a pass someone is sending to me, then very rapidly kick it into a goal. I need a lot of different skills, and like just doing the same, like if I had someone kick me the ball from the same angle or just mm-hmm. do the same kick 10,000 times, actually, like when you look at the motor learning, motor mm-hmm. sort of performance, you would see that like I would be much more effective spending 30 minutes having someone kick me a ball from a bunch of different angles mm-hmm. and i would be having someone for five hours kicking me the ball in the same angle i just keep doing the shot over and over and over and over yeah
2: so
0: the it's, idea of like a, a perfect skill and practicing it, a perfect skill
1: may not exist that like there's no problem solving component when you're getting used to do, so when you're rolling a cigar hmm there's very little pro and this isn't to denigrate anyone that does that at a high level. It's still a skill. It's still valuable, but there's not a ton of problem solving you need to do when you're rolling a cigar, when the conditions are basically the same every single day for every Mm -hmm. cigar,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: don't have to do a ton of problem solving. Every time you're stepping onto the soccer field, you have to do a ton of problem solving. And so if you approach the practice the same way, just doing this repetitive thing over and over, one will lead to better skill presentation and one won't. What you'll see in the person that just applies this over and over thing in, a, in an open skill, like a soccer player, that requires being able to shoot a ball from multiple different angles that you're much better off doing shorter sessions with, with a lot of variability in the practice than mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing. So I hear all the time, like, I don't know if you follow basketball at all, but this guy, Steph Curry, mm-hmm. who's a really good shooter, and so, um, and this actually gets into the memory part, but he'll talk about all the time. Like, ah, you know, I take 10,000 shots a day and like, look, there, there's a certain amount of skill you will gain by just doing the same shot 10,000 times a day. But my point is it's not nearly, you're not gonna adapt that skill as well as you could Mm -hmm. you added a lot more variability to it and it's also a disconnect to like he when you watch what these guys do they really don't do the same thing even though they think they are doing that Over, they're really not Mm -hmm. actually putting in a lot of variability even in their practice and certainly in a game
0: yeah um what about what does this mean for our exercise
1: um well so that's that's something i think about quite often because like, I don't know, it depends to you where, what you think exercise is. So Mm. like I've had clients that literally hire me because they don't want, they just want to put the physical stresses on their body. So their body derives the health benefits from it. And they don't want to think of anything past that. Like they don't really want to learn. And I've had clients that like, and again, this is one of those, I said BC and AD, like, I didn't know I was doing this to climb. But 10 years ago, when someone was doing a rep, I was like, you know, wherever I, I positioned my body in order to spot them, I was giving them like second by second feedback. A little bit, okay, now squeeze this. And a bit like, I was giving them so much feedback.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: actually limiting their ability to problem solve because like I am touching them. I'm talking to them. I am like... And so there would be some clients who are like literally working with them for five years. I'd put like the dumbbells on their thighs, and I'd be like, "All right, we're going to do a chest press." And they would look at me like, oh, "What?" Like, they would- <laughs> yeah. And it's be- and it's my fault because like they never learned. All they, you know, I never let them learn. I took all the learning and problem solving out of it. I just told them what to do. I basically like gave them a target to move to and helped assist them a little bit and like moving towards it. So. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. If exercise to you is this thing where you want to put physical stresses on your body so that the tissues Mm -hmm. adapt. And again, even if you choose that route, I still suggest that you like go through the spectrum of different contractile capabilities. But if that's all you want out of exercise, that's fine. Mm. Um, If you look at exercise as a skill and it's something like if you're someone that works with a personal trainer,
0: but that's who, yeah, that's who we're talking to right now. I mean, yeah. the people yeah. that are here, like they want to value their exercise. They want to do it for the long haul without paying somebody $140 an hour to okay. be with so
1: them. If you want to learn how to do a lunge really well and to be able to do it on your own, then you've got to do some problem solving. And if you're getting second by second feedback from your trainer or somewhat like you are limiting your ability to make errors which is something i hope we get into later
0: oh yes 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 that's where i want to go next
1: yeah errors so you can problem solve and that's what learning is so learning is not this mystical like you know learning is observable meaning like we give a bandwidth of saying like again we could say like we're going to consider learning hitting 4 out of 10 free throws and if you hit 0 out of 10 free throws we're going to say you didn't learn the task you mm-hmm. can perform it but you're not you haven't learned it so we can apply that to a lunge and say okay so here's the basic shape of what this lunge should look like so like And if you talk in technical terms, you can say, I want your knee to flex this much or hip to flex. Or you can just say, look, here's a target. I want you to bring your foot towards here. I want you to come all the way forward. Then I want you to push yourself back. And you give a basic parameter and you let someone start to figure it out on their own. And then either on their own by using a mirror or maybe some other form of feedback, or you as the trainer, you agree on a certain, here's another term I I stole from Dr. Juris, which is he always talks about a bandwidth of error, Mm. that he wants someone to, and another thing I learned from him was, um, and is one of the things you asked me before we did this podcast, Mm -hmm. which is something I say to my clients all the time, Mm -hmm. which is, Before just about any exercise, I will say, do you understand what I'm asking you to do? Because 99% of the time someone doesn't do, when someone, when something just doesn't look right, maybe not 99%, but way more often, it's just that they don't understand. I didn't make it clear what I'm asking them to do. When they understand what I'm asking them to do, then I let them do that. And then I have a certain bandwidth of error based person to person on what I think is if they're Operating within this bandwidth of error, and I'll give them more time than not to sort of solve it on their own. And That's so,
0: so interesting.
1: Yeah, I no longer I'm like hovering over someone. Like yes. okay, now one more second. <laughs> like I just because you actually like you <clears throat> you yeah. you're enabling someone, and you're actually um, getting in the way of letting them learn. So if exercise to someone, if learning had if learning Is part of the equation to someone in exercise, then that's where all the stuff comes in. They have to understand what the basics of the task are. You have to let them try it. You as a coach or them on their own have to, you know, create some sort of bandwidth of error. And then if someone can't do it within this bandwidth of error, then you've got to problem solve and figure out, is it too much load? Is it too fast? Is it that, you know, maybe this joint can't move that way you know then you have to like put on your hat and start problem solving as to why they can't Mm operate in this bandwidth of error but the learning is you know what the learning is basically the stuff that i think we'll talk about soon which is basically just creating neuroplastic like creating these neuroplastic changes in the brain Mm -hmm. these letting these things that fire together wire together to where you you begin to learn the basics of this task demand but the biggest part is that if you don't let someone make errors, so part of creating these neuroplastic networks, 50% is the wiring together. The other 50% is throwing out the garbage, all the pruning. So if you don't prune away the stuff that's not essential, mm-hmm. then you don't make these efficient um, net, these efficient networks, essentially. That's key. It's totally key. It's, yeah.
0: No. I. Yeah. That's worth stopping for a second. That's a big one.
1: Yeah. yeah. Literally yeah. half the deal is like, it's one thing to wire together, but if you didn't throw out all the other stuff, it like it wouldn't be efficient communication. What you're trying to do when you're making plastic changes, is making the stuff that needs to talk to each other more efficient, and the other half of that is throwing out anything that's not essential to that. And the only way you can do that is to make errors and then run it again and you keep refining that until you get like so there's something else in terms of skill acquisition that there are these different phases of skill acquisition and there's a couple different models but there's something called cognitive Mm -hmm. associative and Mm -hmm. automatic and automatic is like you watch lebron james dribble a basketball that skill is his eyes like if you watch me dribble a basketball the ball is like moving in like slightly different directions. I'm looking down at it. I can barely like walk and chew gum at the same time because I suck mm-hmm. at basketball.
2: LeBron
1: mm-hmm. James, if you watch him dribble a basketball, his eyes aren't looking anywhere near his hand. He's looking at like something totally abstract that even other professional players aren't necessarily consciously noticing. But he's not. he's not, he doesn't need to look at his hand because to me dribbling a basketball is very cognitive. Like when you're learning how to dance and you're literally counting out one, two, three, one, two, three,
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as
1: you get better at it, it becomes more associative, meaning like it's not perfect, but you're still using, like if you can imagine someone rollerblading for the first time, they look like Frankenstein. They're very rigid and stiff. They're using like every muscle in their body because they haven't made it efficient yet. And over time, what you like three months later, if they rollerblade every day, they're going to be disco roller skating and like you know going backwards and playing their leg like a guitar and it's because they've
2: mm-hmm.
1: they've learned over time like only using the amount of muscle that's necessary for the task and they've learned to prune away contracting all these other muscles and so the the hierarchy of learning a skill is you go from this cognitive phase where like you literally have to like look at the thing you're doing or count out loud or both to this point where like you don't even think about the skill you're just doing it and then Mm -hmm. you think it opens your your brain to think about other things like
2: Mm.
1: you know and it could be anything it could be like you're looking at other players on a field you could be thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch like you know for most of us that's what walking is like we no longer have to like look at our feet but if you look at someone who is just learning to walk again or you know a baby, oh, like it's very yeah. positive for them. They like
0: that this learning how to walk again, this is where this motor learning stuff really can shine. Is when we're talking about getting people back to exercise and back to normal movement. Would you say that's true?
1: Sure. Well, any any movement fits into the motor learning um you know literature. You just have to mm-hmm. figure out okay, so what is walking entail? Is walking open or closed? Is is walking, you know, um, what are the components of walking? And then based on that, like what is necessary? Um, what's the best way of training for those components? And then obviously this is also something we were talking about Mm -hmm. that there. So skill acquisition can be a very different animal versus strength and conditioning. Meaning Mm. that like for, if I'm learning how to walk again, there's a certain i will probably need my muscles to get stronger because my muscles are what are going to move my joints so i can walk
2: mm-hmm. um
1: there's going to be other neurological skill acquisition aspects to walking or whatever skill but for skill acquisition um doing something repetitively and again like i said we'd have to figure out the type of skill and all that but still doing a certain amount of volume of it and a lot of volume of it is helpful. Mm. Or strength and conditioning, like we were talking before, if I do a crazy chest workout and we know now what I've learned is that the chest has a higher preponderance of fast twitch fibers, it's a smaller muscle. So if I applied a motor skill acquisition um, scheme to training my chest and I trained it again like five o'clock that day that I woke up at 6 a.m. the next day then I did at 12... If I kept training my chest all the time, I'm not getting, depending on what my goal might be, but for most people like strength and conditioning, you're trying to get a certain amount of strength, power, endurance, whatever. Like, I don't wanna train my chest three times a day, every day. <laughs> I might wanna do some version of for a skill acquisition training. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
0: It does. I mean, it does because if and the skill that- acquisition is there, you have a more robust connection and therefore you have more robust like chemical response. Is that, would that line up?
1: The way I think about it is that you're, you're give your body what it needs in terms of resources. And again, Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm very biased into thinking that everybody needs strength. Everybody needs power. Everybody Mm -hmm. needs endurance. And so I'm very biased towards that. But again, that's my, that's, that's.
0: Yeah, that's why my, you're here. Why I want, I want your bias.
1: That's my opinion. Yeah. Um, you and someone can certainly argue, okay, you don't need all those all the time, whatever. But in my opinion, your training program should figure out how to make the best out of these. How, what is, what is the way I can train so I optimize my ability to call onto these resources? And then I have to match that with the skill I'm trying to learn. So if I'm a professional basketball player, I'd have to figure out how to modify this type of training into a basketball season. Do I want to do like a lot of one rep max stuff in the middle of a basketball season?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: not. Like it just doesn't, nothing about that one rep max that I do on Wednesday is probably going to help me in my game on Thursday respective of the volume of games i have to play in a season so like i have to figure out what is the best way of optimizing my resources which is my strength and conditioning look at the skill i'm trying to acquire then you know spend my time focusing on acquiring that skill and then letting the brain figure out like how to use the resources i have to do this skill at a high level so if i have enough strength power and endurance and now because i've trained for that and now i'm like learning the skill my brain will figure out how to use that how to use the strength power endurance of whatever muscles it needs in the way that will be most efficient over as i get better at the skill it's going to figure out like you know how to use what i give it in the most efficient way and They 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 both feed on each other is what I'm trying to say. like Symbiotic. That, yeah, they're symbiotic. So the better my strength and conditioning is, then, you know, and the better I get at the skill, the better I should be at the skill. And the better I get at the skill, you know, that should, like, well, that will- well
0: the more that you can use your body. I mean, it's the, the whole point of this is that we keep moving and that we're healthy when we're doing it, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So if um I mean if you want to talk about a skill during all this virus mess,
2: <laughs> I started
0: jump roping again. Uh-huh. And this is something I learned a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just finished a podcast recording and I called myself a prodigy
2: <laughs> jump
0: rope specialist. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um yeah, so if we're talking about that right now, if I want to acquire this skill and not hurt myself, because I can't get to the doctor right now if I do hurt myself. If my knee starts hurting, there's
2: nowhere
0: for me to go except, you know, um, to use my conventional knowledge, right? Um, not I, I say that in air quotes because my knowledge is not conventional.
1: <laughs>
0: what, how would I do this? How would i use that information
1: well okay so we would first have to say like so jump so okay let me back up again for a second and so there's a term that people like to use muscle memory Mm -hmm. um and i that that term used to really bother me because you know muscles i would say well look muscles don't have a brain you know memory is a cortical thing but you know the actually the more like you look at research at what really happens with muscles, muscles themselves do have a memory in terms of how they will respond in terms of the force that has been placed on them previously. So, for example, if you really st- and I don't I'm not saying stretching is bad, and I, I truly don't believe it is. But if you really stretch a muscle. Mm-hmm and then some, you know, a few minutes after that, try to see how much force you can produce with that muscle. Temporarily, you'll see a deficit in force. So the muscle itself, there's some memory that like this muscle has about the forces that were placed on it. Um, Like literally, I'm nothing to do even like neurologically, just like the amount of tension that was placed in the muscle and pulling these like
0: yeah there's muscles. like a there's a barrier yeah that it reaches yeah, just, and
1: yeah. just like literally the physical stress that's been placed on the t- you can take you can cut out somebody's brain like literally just the tension that's been placed on it and what that how that deforms the the contractile elements inside the muscle
2: mm-hmm.
1: so but anyway so there is a little bit of a muscle memory but you certainly have motor memory And motor memory is sort of divided into a couple things. And it's a little bit like what I was talking about this before with this cognitive, associative, and automated, but you have an explicit motor memory. Mm -hmm. You've got implicit motor memory. And explicit are like the types of the things where like, if I say to you, do a squat, you're like, okay, hip width apart, I'm going to go down to 90, you know, whatever, like the things about the task that you can sort of verbalize. That you know implicit
0: and explicit. Which one is that? That's
1: explicit. Explicit. You can yeah, that's you can define it, you can verbalize it, motor memory. Implicit motor memory are these changes that you can't really verbalize that happen as you as you acquire a skill, and we keep coming back to this thing of neuroplasticity. So that means Mm -hmm. like you're getting neurons that are associated with skill to fire together and wire together.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You are pruning away the any muscles and and uh, you're
0: Marie condoing.
1: Yeah, you're, you're exactly, you're putting out, you're taking away any sort of joint movements or muscles that are not necessary for this motion. Um, but you can't really verbalize exactly because it's not conscious. These are unconscious parts of motor memory. Um, and so the, depending on like where you are with jump roping. Mm -hmm. So if, If you were previously a really high level jump roper somewhere in your long-term memory storage, you kind of, you know what they say about like riding a bike or whatever, like you probably retained a pretty good model of that skill, at least according to a certain- It wasn't
0: bad. I have video and actually I'm going to use it to promote this podcast.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. First, we'd have to, like I said, first, we would have to figure out, is this skill open or closed? So because you get to choose the pace, we're going to call this a closed skill. Then, you know, we would take in consideration, like, what is it, what was your skill level coming into this thing? So you would say, you know. Uh, you're,
0: I was competitive.
1: Yeah. So you were at, at were you, would you say you were at a close, to like, expert level?
0: Yeah. So we were, like, I, I used to perform with a jump okay.
1: So then if we know you're at expert level. So then there's another fancy term I'll use, which is contextual interference and contextual interference. Is when you look at a skill and basically it's like what it sounds like you figure out how much can you mess with this skill in terms of like, so I could say to you like, all right, Jen, so I want you to do one minute of jump rope with two feet. Then I want you to do one minute of jump rope with one foot. Then you're going to do 10 seconds of like jumping jacks. Then you're going to do 30 seconds of like forward, like switch. So I'm giving you like all these different variables. And like it, because you're an expert, I feel comfortable starting with that. And so I'm, Mm. and I could either, I could contextual interference is that. So high contextual interference would be that like, I just put these different variations in a totally random order. Like I say, like, okay, when you hear me clap once, that means two feet. When you hear me clap twice, that means one foot. And like, you have no idea what's coming. You're just sort of like, Mm. because you're so good at the skill, you have extra space in your brain to to focus your attention on my clap, which Mm. if you were just learning the skill, like you don't have that extra space. So we couldn't start there. But because you're an expert, I can say okay like but you have no idea what's coming and you've just got to react to whatever like you hear the clap designation i give you you've got to react low contextual interference would still be like i'm giving you different variations of it like two foot one foot switch kicks jumping jacks but you know exactly you know it's one minute of this one minute of that and so basically we would measure like we would try to figure out okay first of all what are we trying to achieve here and you could say I want to be able to jump rope at like, I don't Well,
0: right minutes. now it's, uh, I need to jump rope for my health and get outside and I don't want to hurt myself.
1: Okay. So yeah, that that's like a volume goal that we have. Yes,
0: that's do. a volume goal. Like
1: mm-hmm. specific skill acquisition. Yep. Although the, I should take that back because- The better and better you get it. Like, you know, if you see a professional boxer, if I jump rope for a minute, I'm about to pass out.
0: Well, I jump rope for 12 minutes the other day and my calves were sore for three and a half days.
1: Yeah, because you're not, it's because like you're, you haven't really become an expert in it to the point that you're still using more muscle effort than you need to. And if you look at a professional boxer, I mean, they can recite like the Pledge of Allegiance without, you know, they do it so often. They're so efficient at it. And the other ironic thing is that we, a lot of us in the strength and conditioning world, and again, like I was saying in the very beginning where my focus used to be like looking at an exercise, looking at the torque profile and figuring out like, okay, well here, if I wanna make sure this exercise has resistance throughout its entire arc, I'm gonna add all these extra components to it. A lot of times I think as exercise professionals, we think that more muscle activity, like if we could measure mm. by EMG or something, mm-hmm. more is better. And for skill acquisition, it's the opposite. The least amount you need is better because you're at the more efficient you get at a skill, the less and less you see in terms of like areas in your brain lighting up and the muscles you actually... Eat. So as you keep doing this, eventually you're going to get some like physiological changes in the muscle. You may get more like type one fiber development your calves and some other muscles a little bit but mainly your brain is going to figure out how to use less muscle more efficiently
0: yes yes and then i could potentially do more like i could have either a longer session or add to my session safely
1: yeah, because you'll be able to absorb the shock better each time and
0: absorb the shock better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, specifically, I want more BDNF as well.
1: Uh huh. Yeah.
0: Like I want my brain oozing, or <laughs> I'm sorry, brain-derived neurotrophic factor uh-huh. comes. It's a muscle protein synthesis, and then in the brain.
1: Yeah, so it's um, I don't know an enzyme. I guess you. Yeah. Want to say. Yeah. I
0: want my body. I want it oozing. Yeah because.
1: thyroid, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I
0: want to, I want to do it naturally. <laughs> no, just
1: yeah. So I don't know you if you might do it like it naturally. a skill you become. So, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, but my basic understanding is that BDNF mm-hmm. typically starts to increase production under levels of high stress. So um jump roping for you ironically you might be getting more bdnf now and you would actually pump out less later because it's not as stressful to you but that's fine mm-hmm. but then you just put in so you say okay so i'm going to do jump roping for 30 minutes then i'm going to do like one set of heavy reps of squats or i'm going to do one set of like very that's it velocity squats or you know yeah. you just figure out other ways of turning that that spout open
0: yeah interesting oh my goodness Thanks for making it this far, guys. You are awesome. I really hope you learned uh, all about the science of skill acquisition and how it applies to exercise. I know I totally was indulged and excited to have that conversation, and so much so that we have a second episode on deck. goes further into this learning of skill and what's happening on at at the muscle level the motor level the motor neuron level and more importantly we share how it is applied to exercise in the gym and as we know it today which is in this age of like the coronavirus and staying home um, and i think It's really empowering to know what you're buying and what you're doing with your body. So I hope you agree. Like I said, hit us up with that review. Buy some rubies, support the show, share the love. Have a great week. I have another episode coming out Monday. It's a solo cast and we all know how much I love those. (laughs) Have a great week.